Hey, who knew Pastor Todd could dance like that? I'm impressed. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time. So glad that you've chosen to join us. I do want to begin by saying thank you to the 90 volunteers who served this last week and just made it such an awesome experience for the kids. So thank you guys so much for that. So over the last few months, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. been opening up our Bibles, looking at the New Testament, and this has been an amazing book. It tells us about the history of the early church. Uh, more than that, it tells us how we got here. It is an absolute miracle work of God, of course, as we've said many, many times. None of this takes place without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why all throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, you see the writers continuously coming back to that historical event, speaking of it in terms of its factual basis. There's no way Christianity exists without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we come to chapters 15 and 16 this morning, and it's really interesting. Chapter 15 is pretty lengthy, but it really is, uh, it's a question that's being asked, and it answers that question. It's an important question. The question is this, what is necessary for salvation? Or to put it maybe more simply, how do I get to heaven? Pretty fundamental question. Now this question arises as a result of the church in its earliest stage was made up primarily of or really exclusively of Jews living in Jerusalem. They knew, they understood their Old Testament, especially those parts that prophesy, speaking of a forthcoming Messiah. They recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies and so they place their faith in Jesus. Then what happens is persecution begins to set in. And the gospel of Jesus moves from beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, into these areas where non-Jews live or Gentiles. We read about an Ethiopian responding to the gospel. We read about a Roman centurion. Um, all kinds of people who aren't Jewish are coming to faith in Christ. Well, those early believers, Jewish believers, did not anticipate this. In fact, some of them were having a hard time with it. And so, a few were teaching that it was necessary for Gentiles, non-Jews, to become somewhat Jewish in order to be fully saved. This is such an important question. This is such a big issue because... Here at the very early stages of Christianity, there is introduced something that holds the potential to make Christianity just like every other religion that existed at the time or since then. Every other religion has you doing something for God, earning your way to heaven or whatever it is that you think might be to come. Now this threat has entered the church, the Christian church. So the Apostle Paul takes notice and he says, this is, this is not a small thing. The purity of the gospel is important. Now let's remember who Paul is. Paul was a religious Jewish zealot. He was on the fast track to becoming a rabbi. Studied under the master teacher, Gamaliel. Hated Christians. He sought to kill them thought Jesus was a fake, Christianity a fraud. And then he has a Damascus Road experience where he encounters the resurrected Jesus. 
and he can't ignore the reality of that circumstance situation and his life is turned upside down. He sought to kill, kill Christians. He becomes one. In fact, he goes on to be one of the most successful humans in all of human history. Think about it. 2,000 years later, millions of people daily, the world over, read his writings. By any measure, the man is a success. So he, he understands the issue. He takes it upon himself to deal with it. There's sort of this council that forms and Paul is a part of it. Uh, he hears about this debate. It's important enough for him to make a very long journey back to Jerusalem to sort this out. This tells us a couple things. Number one, theology is important. There was a day when theology was considered queen of the sciences. Not anymore, especially in secular universities. But back in the day, theology was considered queen of the sciences for good reason. Because good theology leads to good application or good practice. If you get your theology wrong, you're going to get your practice wrong. So this is very important. The other reason why this is important is because truth is important. Truth is important. Now, look, we live in a time, a culture, where it's popular to believe, promote, teach, live by this, this simple, uh, simple mantra. It goes like this. Just live your truth. Have you ever heard people say that? People will say, hey, I'm just living my truth. It doesn't matter if it's true for you. It's true for me. And I'm just living my truth. C.S. Lewis says, that's like building in the dark. The challenge with that is one day the light will be turned on. And everything that you've been building will be exposed for what it really is. You say, how so? The harsh reality of human existence is this. Every single person in this room is going to die. You're going to die. The question remains, what's next? What happens after that? We don't really think about our own mortality until someone we know and love dies and then we're slapped in the face with it. We think about it for a little while, but it's been said that all of man's life is one effort to not even think about death. But it's coming. What happens next? Well, we're not, we're not all in agreement. We're not all saying the same things. Uh, our annihilationist friends believe that when you die, you're buried and that's it. It's over. There's no existence beyond this life. Our friends that practice Eastern religions believe that life is a series of birth, death, rebirth. And if you've done enough good things in this life, there is a hope that in the life to come, it will be better or higher for you. Many Americans believe that as long as your good outweighs your bad, then God will throw open the gates of heaven for you. Meanwhile, Christians who understand their Bibles, who read the words of Jesus, they know Jesus said, no one gets to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Question, who should we believe? The answer is really very simple. This is why I began by saying, when you read the Bible, isn't it interesting? The New Testament authors over and over again, you know what they tell you? Resurrection. Resurrection. <laughs> 
First Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, I know I've written a lot to you. Let me tell you what is of the utmost importance, primary importance, first importance, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And then you know what he says? According to the Scriptures. This is nothing new. If you read your Old Testament, the prophets spoke about this. This is all fulfilled in Jesus. So we're just not hanging stuff out there. And You've heard me say many times, Christianity, it, it just, oh, it's, it's so irritating when people say that Christianity is a blind faith. We have to give them some grace because they have no clue. In their ignorance, they don't understand Christianity is unmatched. But now early on in the church's inception, there is this thing that's starting to, it's starting to mess with the purity of the gospel. What is necessary for salvation? Some Jews were teaching that you had to become Jewish in order to be fully saved. And, and so the, the question is, is put like this. Because the reality is, um, one day, reality will confront you. And all of your personal truths that you've held on to so very sincerely, they will be exposed as being wrong. They will be exposed as lies. And it, it really doesn't matter if a person sincerely believes this is my personal truth and it's working for me because there will come a day when your truth no longer works. So the question is put in the form of uh, a theological statement, chapter 15, verse 1. So, but some men came down from Judea to the city of Antioch. And they were teaching the brothers, right? So there's this group, that, a group of teachers that comes down and, and this is what they're teaching. And this is the issue. They're teaching this to Christians. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, we find that in our Old Testament, you cannot be saved. See what they're saying? After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, they're arguing about this, they're debating with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, some Jews, Jewish Christians are, 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 are they're saying this. If you're not a Jew and you come to faith in Christ, let's say you're Roman or you're Greek, that's great. It's good that you recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Here's the part that you're missing. You're missing some of our Jewish customs and traditions. So, Jesus did his part. He died on the cross. But now it's up to you to do, you, to do your part. And the identifying physical characteristic of a Jewish man was circumcision. That was laid down in the law of Moses. So Jesus is good, but you've also got to abide by our rituals and customs. Now, needless to say, if you are a Gentile Christian man, you're really interested in who wins this debate for good reason, right? I mean, you've got some real personal vested interest in how this thing is decided, okay? You've got your ear to the door listening to how this debate goes down. So again, very early within Christianity, there is something in the waters that ought not to be there. Gospel purity is important. Theological truth is important. This is nothing new. Um, what's missing here is grace. There are some who are trying to put burdens on those who ought to be unburdened because of their faith. 
Jesus dealt with this in his own time with the religious leaders of his day, Luke chapter 11. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also. Now, these lawyers were men who, they came up with long lists of things that the people had to do in order to put a smile on God's face. You want to make God happy? Make sure you're completing all these lists of do's. For you load people with burdens that are really hard to bear. It's like people are running around thinking, have I done all the right things? Have I, I got to check everything off this list. Man, that's really burdensome. That's not what Christianity is about. And, and this is, look at the not only that, they're hypocrites. Jesus says, but you yourselves, you don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You lay it on other people. You don't even apply them to your own lives. The gospel of Jesus is not burdensome. And what you have happening is some are saying, Gentiles, you must carry this burden of circumcision in order to be fully saved. Now, Peter is also attending this meeting. He weighs in on it and gives his response in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, you know what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. There's nothing you could do to deserve it. There's a point in Scripture where the grace of God is likened to, well, the phrase that's used, it's really beautiful in the Greek language. Grace upon grace is the English translation, but the same wording was used to describe waves. You know, you're at the beach, and here comes one wave, and right behind it comes another and then there's another. And there's another. So every time at the beach I'm sitting, I'm looking at waves, I get that word picture. Grace. Oh, here it comes again. Grace. Wave upon wave of grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So in other words, what's being said is the burden has been lifted. Oh. Relax a little bit. Uh, no fear of living up to standards that are impossible to achieve. There's no fear of worrying whether you've done all the right things or if you've done enough of them. The burden of expectations is gone. The, let's just keep going with it. The burden of what others think about you is gone. You're not defined by what people think about you. You're not defined by your job. You're not defined by your possessions. You're not defined by what you have. All of those things will crush you under their weight because they are an endless pursuit. Place all that you have on Jesus, including your own efforts and your burden is released. Christians are always, they are always sacrificing their freedoms in the worst way. You know what happens when a church loses sight of grace? Listen carefully, church. What happens when a church loses sight of grace? There's a word for it. Legalism. That's what happens when a church loses sight of grace. Legalism creates prideful people. Christians are they're always straining their freedoms in the wrong way. Uh, so, have you ever heard someone say, well, you Christians, you're awfully selective. Boy, it sure seems like there are parts of the Bible you obey and there are parts of the Bible that you set aside. 
You ever heard Christians accused of that? Here's my response. You're right. It's exactly right. Christians are actually called to set aside those things which the Bible itself sets aside. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, Levitical law, God was doing something radical. He was revealing who he is to the world, but he was going to use a specific people group to be a window through which people would see him. That's how it works. This is why you get all these kind of seemingly strange restrictions. Eat this, don't eat that. Wear this, don't wear that. Associate with these people, but don't associate with these people. It's like God was saying, don't get too cozy with these folks from pagan cultures because you're going to be tempted to absorb into that culture, to absorb their pagan gods. And then my message that I want to send to the world through you is going to be diluted and we want to keep it pure. So I'm going to call a people out from amongst others and they will know that I am your God and that you are my people. This is why you have all these seemingly strange restrictions in Levitical law. God was doing that for a very specific purpose. And by the way, that people group would be known as the Jews, the nation of Israel, the ancient Hebrews. They were going to be blessed beyond their wildest imaginations if they would take this relationship seriously and maintain the purity of it. Maintain the purity of it. Part of that purity involved coming before God. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you see prophets coming into the presence of God and their response is not, wow, God is amazing. No, the response is, God is so perfectly whole and pure and I am not. Isn't that interesting? If you were in the presence of God, you'd be like, oh, I'd ask him all these questions. You know, I got questions for you. No, you would. You'd fall on your face because you are, when you are in the presence of something so perfectly pure, what you are hit with is who you really are. It's exposed. And that's what happens. And so God says, you just can't come into my presence on your own. You need to be cleansed. And so this is why the Old Testament sacrificial system. So two goats, one would be sacrificed because the wages of sin is death. That tells you you better take it seriously. And more to the point, that blood from that animal would be sprinkled on the crowd. That's kind of gross and disgusting. That's the point. Take your sin seriously. We don't take it very seriously. But it is an offense against the holy God who created you. Plus, that's why the world is so jacked up. Then there was a scapegoat. Scarlet tied around the other goat's neck. That, that scarlet represented the sins of the people. Then that goat was led way outside the city gates. Never to be seen. Because if that goat came back into, into the town, you're like, uh-oh, our sins have returned. So that goat was way led way away. One was sacrificed. His blood was shed so that another goes free. The sins of the people were atoned for for a year. All of that pointed forward to guess who? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. So in the New Testament, what we're being told is Old Testament sacrificial system, set it aside. Fulfilled in Jesus. So yeah, we're going to set that part aside because the Bible tells us to set it aside. What about all the dietary restrictions, the food, all that kind of stuff? Even the clothing, what about all that stuff? Why don't we still do that today? Because now, the full representation and manifestation of who God is through his people now is through the church. And God has placed his spirit within us. That's why Peter receives a vision. The sheet comes down from heaven. There's all these animals on it. And God says what? What was formerly unclean is now what? Clean. 
He says, rise and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. And God, I was like, no, yeah, but there's a bigger message behind it. And that is the people who you thought were unclean are now clean. Because next, what follows is a conversion of a Gentile. And Peter had to have that vision in order to be convinced. I see what's happening. Some things are being set aside because Jesus comes. He's the fulfillment. Those things were a shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. So yeah, Christians do set aside certain things. Only those things that the Bible itself sets aside. Okay? Simple. No problem. These guys were having, some of these early Christians were having a hard time setting some things aside. They're still like, no, I'm telling you, it's got to be circumcision. Let's just hold on to one thing, one, one part of our Jewishness. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female. He's not removing genders. What he's saying is within the family of God, everybody's welcome. And it was absolutely revolutionary, as we've said many, many times back in the day. There was no word to describe it. And so that's why the word Christian was invented. Because it was bringing people together in ways that nothing else had in the history of the world. So, it's a very serious issue and one that has to be uh, resolved. Um, Paul weighs in on the conversation after explaining that Gentiles were coming to faith apart from any work. He's like, listen, let me just give you my input. I, I was uh, on this missionary journey. I'm explaining the message to Gentiles, to non-Jews. They're coming to faith in Christ. They're receiving the Holy Spirit, and they're not circumcised. James then adds his comments and summarizes them beginning with verse 19. Therefore, he says, here's my judgment, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't make it a burden for them, just like Jesus said. Then he adds this. But we should write to them and tell them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and abstain from blood. Why? He tells you in verse 21. Because from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this is kind of weird. You think, what, are you contradicting yourself? You say, no, no, let's not burden them, but let's tell them to abstain from these things. Now, what's interesting about this list is that most everything in this list has to do with the eating habits of Gentiles. This is what the early apostles are doing. They're saying, you have Christian freedom. You don't have to become circumcised. If you want to become circumcised, fine. That's not the issue. That's not what brings salvation. You're saved by grace, just as we are. But you ought to think about some self-imposed limitations on your Christian freedoms in order to reach people for Christ. There is no way, no way, a Gentile will have any kind of voice a Gentile Christian, if he begins to speak to an unsaved Jew about the things of Christ while still holding to some Gentile practices. If you're wanting to share the gospel as, an, as a saved Gentile with an unsaved Jew and you're inviting them to dinner, forget about it. There is no restaurant that's going to cater to that Jewish person. It doesn't exist. There's all these cultural barriers. This is why elsewhere Paul says, I became all things to all men. Why? So that I might win more to Jesus Christ. In chapter 16, right, the very next chapter, it opens up. We learn about this guy named Timothy. 
Paul is discipling Timothy. He's, I, I don't like using this, this phrase necessarily. Let's just say he's, he's binational, okay? Because race today is very different than what it meant in the, in the first century AD. Uh, he's binational in that his, his father is Greek and his mom is Jewish. And so Paul wants to take him along with him to share the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says, Timothy, here's the deal. If you want to maximize your gospel voice and your effectiveness in reaching the Jews, they're going to look at you and they're going to realize that you're not circumcised. And they're going to know that you're not fully Jewish. Therefore, they're not going to listen to what you have to say. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Timothy. Get circumcised. And he does. You want to know why Christianity spread like wildfire through men like Paul, Timothy, and through some of the ladies that we're going to talk about in a second? It's because those early Christians were willing to do anything short of sin in order to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were willing to do anything short of sin in order to tell people about Jesus. So this is the same principle at work here. He says, no, you're not saved by anything other than the grace of God through the death of Jesus. But let's talk about maximizing your effectiveness for purposes of reaching others so that they can have eternal life too, right? So these are the things that we suggest you abstain from. So that's why this list is included. So, you know, this is the beautiful thing about Christianity because um, this is what grace does. It frees you from cultural, cultural barriers. And there are a lot of them. Have you ever attended uh, a church service in a country like Jamaica? I can tell you three things are going to happen, okay? Number one, that service will not start on time. You're lucky if it's an hour late. Number two, it's going to last for several hours. You all get fidgety if we're at like 61 minutes. That service is going to last hours. Thirdly, there's going to be little kids running everywhere during the whole time. Total, it's like... And the Americans sit there and they're like, okay, can we get started now? And the Jamaicans are like, what's the problem, man? And Americans are like, how rude. And Jamaicans are like, how rude. And what grace does is it brings all of those cultural barriers and melts them away. And you understand, oh, okay. I'm in a different culture. Therefore, I will adapt to this culture so that I can win people to Christ. You see, there's a, there's a higher calling to your Christian freedoms. And it might involve putting self-imposed limitations on your Christian freedoms, which is the mark of great maturity, by the way. See, the Christian who says, I have all these freedoms to do this, 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 this. No, actually, you're pretty immature. Because it's the mature Christian who says, what can I do to reach that person? And so this is just a beautiful cultural moment in so many ways. Um, After this event, in chapter 16, we discover how the gospel of Jesus impacts two very different women. So there's an immediate application of what we read in chapter 15. All right, let's jump down to 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we, notice Luke, our author, includes himself in this because now he's writing as an eyewitness. He joins them. 
We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So the Jews would consider her a God-fearer. She's not Jewish um, by uh, ethnicity, but she worships the Jewish God. So this woman, Lydia, is fascinating. She's a Gentile worshiping the God, the Hebrew God. We're also told, though, that she's a businesswoman, and uh, she must be quite successful. It's as if she owns her own uh, boutique. She sells purple. You might already know that purple was the color of royalty. When the soldiers wanted to mock Jesus, they dressed him in a purple robe because Jesus was declared king of the Jews. And so here's this, this king, and they're, they're facetiously saying, now look at your king, Jews. You know, what a king you've got. He's dressed in purple. But purple was exceedingly expensive. Only the ultra-uber-wealthy could afford it, and I'm going to explain why. Back in the day, purple, purple dye came from a small mollusk that had this mucus tinted purple. And this mollusk was found in the Mediterranean. I think we have a picture, just so you can show. It may not be the best picture, but you see, you can kind of tell by the color of the mollusk itself. Now, imagine your job is to extract the purple mucus from this little mollusk, and you had to get enough so that it really, really stained the cloth a deep, dark purple. Took a lot of those little mollusks, took a lot of time, a lot of effort. These things were not found just anywhere. So this was a long process, and it was exceedingly expensive. She dealt in this business. Uh, and it tells you that she's successful because we learn that, that she has her own home. This is a woman who is surrounded by beauty and luxury. Maybe in some ways, if I can say this, if you'll allow me to, the quintessential North Scottsdale kind of woman. <laughs> Nervous laughter. And so, she, she, she really doesn't lack anything from a worldly perspective. She's got the successful career, but there's something missing. She's searching for something more. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love this verse because you and I, we have people in our lives that are far from God and you feel like, what can I do? I can't do anything. No, that's wrong. What you do is you pray that God would open his or her heart to the things of God. God does this for Lydia. What happens next? Verse 15, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, you've seen me, I believe the message, I've been baptized, everyone in my household as well. If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. More about that Greek word prevailed in a second, because it's interesting. So she comes to faith in Christ. She's baptized. By the way, there it is again. If you're not baptized, you have some unfinished business with God. When people come to faith in Christ, they are immediately baptized. Right? We're going to be doing baptisms again two weeks from now. Call the church. We'll hook you up. She identifies herself publicly with Jesus. Baptism does not save you. Let me make that clear. Baptism doesn't save you. How do we know that? Because if it was required, where would we find it? In Acts chapter 15. Because the question was, what is necessary for salvation? But we don't find baptism there. What we find is the grace of God. But baptism is an outward identifier, right? It tells people, and the communication is, hey, I belong to Jesus. 
The scriptures say that baptism saves you. Not in the sense that it gets you into heaven, but it saves you from having a guilty conscience before God. That's why I say you've got some unfinished business with God if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't publicly identified yourself with Christ. So she's baptized, identifies herself with Jesus. And then she immediately gets into ministry. This is like every pastor's dream. (laughs) She says, what can I do to serve? You know what? I have a home. Stay with me. And there's some kind of discussion that goes on because the Greek word for prevail literally means to persuade. They're kind of like, I'm not sure that we should stay with you. And she's like, no, no, no. Just listen. Hear me out. And this lady wins the argument with these guys. They end up staying with her. A church begins to meet in her home. And what we know is that this church becomes one of the most influential churches in all of church history. You cannot underestimate the impact and influence of women in the early church. All right? That's Lydia. Now, we get the second example of someone that encounters Jesus, but it's a very different woman. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. And the word describing girl here, describes a girl that's no more than 12 years old. Okay, so she's young. She had a spirit of divination. So she's demon possessed. But this demon brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So on the one hand, you have Lydia, who's like hearing about the gospel around a charcuterie board. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. You know what I'm saying, right? She's kind of in a highbrow society. She's got a nice home. The message comes into this comfortable place, and she responds. Now you have this girl. She's 12 years old, and think of her as someone who's being trafficked. She followed Paul and us, crying out. And again, the words here literally describe someone who's screaming. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Over and over, she's screaming this. By the way, that message she's screaming is true. You know why? Because demons know their theology. James says that the demons believe that God is one. Even they believe that God is one. That was said in a time when everybody else believed that in polytheism, there are many gods. No, even the demons back then in a polytheistic culture knew that there is only one God. All those other gods were fake. Demons have good theology. They just don't put it into practice. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become, this is a great phrase, greatly annoyed. Literally, that's what the phrase, the word means. He is just so out of his mind, irritated. This girl's screaming. He finally turns and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it comes out of her that very hour. Girl very different than Lydia, but one no less who is afflicted. Um, the Greeks had a word that they would use to describe these kinds of people. There weren't a lot of them. There were a few, but enough for the Greeks to actually have their own word to describe them. Let me give you the Latin translation of the Greek word. Ready? Ventri laquis. That's the Latin translation of the Greek word. Ventri laquis. From which we get our English word ventriloquist. In other words, this was a woman who spoke with many voices. She's tormented. She's 12 years old. She's trafficked. And she needs Jesus. And she's met with the power of Jesus' name. Both women experience Jesus in a very different way. One surrounded by luxury. The other with a confrontation. But the message is clear. No matter who you are, no matter your story, You need Jesus. It is the faithful mission of the church. And when I say church, what am I talking about? Let's replace the word church with Christian. 
it is the ministry of every Christian to take the gospel out into the world. Question. What are you willing to sacrifice to do that? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to risk? Too many of us play it far too safe, and as a result, we miss out on the joy that comes in seeing who God is drawing to himself. Some plant seeds, some come along and they water, but God provides the growth. Somehow God uses human effort and his divine sovereignty to bring about eternity that is in everybody's heart for those who respond. So I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and maybe now more than ever you've been hit with the realization that it it is all about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you need to. You say, what do I need to know? The story's always been the same. Jesus came to die on the cross, shed his blood when yours is due. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. That's physical death and spiritual death. Jesus came to remove that. Jesus came to put right what was a seriously dysfunctional relationship between you you and God. But here's the thing. We're the cause of the dysfunction. So on the cross, all of our dysfunction gets put on Jesus. In exchange, he gives us eternal life. And for those of us that have already embraced that message, you know, as we leave here this morning, the, the prayer, it was my own prayer for myself. God, what am I willing to to risk? What am I willing to give up? What self-imposed limitations on my freedom so that I can enter into another's life and reach that person with the gospel? Father, we need your help. You've already done the heavy lifting, obviously, by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Lord, beyond that, I pray that the grace, the mercy, all of those things that we've received from you would now become the motivation to extend that to those around us. May we be characterized in that way. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and that's what made his message so appealing. Fathers, we leave here this morning, we ask that your spirit, as always, would impress upon every heart exactly what they need. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.